Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from California, he's our guest, journalist and author, Michael Scott Moore. Took an untrodden path once where the swift don't win the race. It goes to the worthy who can divide the word of truth. It took a stranger to teach me to look into justice's beautiful face and to see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I and I, in creation where one's nature neither honors nor forgives, I and I, one says to the other, no man sees my face and lives. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Knowing something of your background, uh, I, I, uh, I had chills uh, run down my spine. <laughs> but I'll just straight out ask you why you chose that. Those lyrics have been going through my head recently. So that's the song that's been on my mind for the last few weeks. For some reason, I don't know. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. no particular reason for it. But those lyrics in particular are really eloquent to me because they're about about a a spiritual progression, right? And and it's not without loss. (laughs) I think those lyrics are just such hard and uncompromising lyrics and also poetic. They've really got their hold on me in the last few weeks, I think. It's interesting. I was talking to Luke just before this about the fact that uh, Dylan goes to places in his head yeah. that you know seem to replicate the, the darkest thoughts that human beings can have. Yeah, yeah. And he does that while his, he's worshipped by millions, which right. is maybe <laughs> exactly. why he does that. <laughs> Well, I mean, it didn't it didn't hurt him, let's say, in his with his early albums. So I suppose he kept doing it. But he he's really managed as an artist to keep away from trying to guess what his audience expects. He can always go back there, which is nice. He seems to he seems to know the path. You know, is it I and I the whole song that uh, grabbed you, or or that particular? Yeah, it's. It's the whole song, um, especially the, the refrain. Um, but I, I picked that verse because it has the wordplay, you know, an eye for an eye. But the refrain is really, it's, it's very eloquent to me because I think of it as a, um, it's, it's a progression from his Christian albums, which he had just done, right? This is from Infidels, mm-hmm. uh, which is the first album after the so-called Christian albums. And I think of this as a more sophisticated version of, you know, there's a line in Saved, I think, about the way of the flesh to war with the spirit. And that's just standard Christianity, right? Mm, yeah. This is a way of expressing that that's a lot more sophisticated. Um, and I, I think of it as, I mean, this is my interpretation, but once I find an interpretation, I'm positive that it's the right one. The, <laughs> this is, I think, a song about the greater and the lesser self. You know, and actually, it's a little bit hopeful, even though it's grim, to say one says to the other, "No man sees my face and lives." You know, either you get stuck in the lower one, or the other one takes over. Um, and that, to me, is a, is a profound idea, and it's something that he had to get to by going through those other albums, I think. Um, and the, just the fact that it's also a hard rock song is it has this grip on me somehow. And there's loads of biblical kind of content in many of his albums that are outside of that Christian trilogy, aren't there? I mean, Infidels is, is full of all sorts of uh, religious apocalyptic content and John Wesley Harding and, and you know. Oh, John, starting with John Wesley Harding and even before that too. Yeah, yeah. of course. And that's, uh, I was noticing that when I was in Somalia too. But uh, I think in Infidels, it feels like he's really 
absorbed all that or reabsorbed it maybe mm. i mean he had to go there and become you know a, a born again christian i suppose in order to reabsorb it and come back in an even more sophisticated way and that's that's how i read at least this song and and maybe even the whole album of infidels and I know, Kerry and I were just saying as well that he's very angry in Infidels. He's angry yeah. about, you know, man touching the moon and, and uh, the, the American <laughs> manufacturing industry and, uh, you know, all sorts of and things. And Israel. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an angry album. And I, I mean, like most people, I think, um, who have followed this stuff, I wish that he had left the angrier stuff on. Blind Willie McTell is also, you know, a little mm. bit angry. Mm. Uh, but Foot of Pride is the angriest song from those whole, all those sessions. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sorry, I listened to Union Sundown again, and he could have left that one off. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The, I, I actually looked up uh, or, or came across the New York Times review of Infidels at the time, and it said, uh, the lyrics suggest frustration and a thrashing, self-generating rage. Yeah. Which, <laughs> that's good and that's i thought good. the self-generating i thought yeah. was was interesting because of course he was uh i think he was about 45 you know he was going through that mm-hmm. terrible he really was it's his, it's one of his midlife crisis yeah albums. <laughs> and it's it's the you know how you can get i mean i was actually talking to my wife the other day i have to say she said you know you got really angry around that time uh-huh. and, um, and yeah i remember i i did and i was just it was a it was a self-generating rage really <laughs> just about stuff yeah and uh and when you're bob dylan i think everything is magnified yeah because you know that you can make a song out of it so why not yeah, <laughs> yeah. True. I, I do find i mean i listened to infidels recently because it's been you know in the in the air and uh i do find it a, a really difficult album i know that uh, luke i think you probably rate it more than me but I, I it's the anger that i find god it's it's exhausting yeah uh, it's like being in a room with a really angry guy for, <laughs> you know he's just constantly it's like a ta- in, well it's not like a taxi driver, like in this country where we have these angry taxi drivers uh-huh. who tell you all the theories of life. But it's <laughs> it's it's a bit like that, I have to say. Except it's poetry. He rants, yeah, he rants. But yeah. it's beautiful. They're beautiful rants. I mean, I yeah, I really yeah. like the album over overall. But when you realize what he left on the cutting room floor, um, and also from Shot of Love, mm. I I feel like you could take eight or nine of my favorite Dylan albums that wound up on other you know outtake albums put them all together and have probably the best Dylan album of his career. And, you, you know, that would include like Groom Still Waiting at the Altar, which I think was a B-side from A Shot That's of right. Love. Yeah, yeah. Caribbean Wind, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You Changed My Life, Heart of Mine. And that would be the Shot of Love side. And then the Infidels songs, the, the outtakes would be Blind Willie McTell and Foot of Pride and Angelina. Well, maybe that was Shot of Love. Mm-hmm. Lord Protect My Child. You have these you know, magnificent, also angry, but not entirely, songs that, that were just making a complete album on their own. Um, I agree. You know what else there's in, the, in all those songs? Because I, I was listening to them recently because we're recording this in August. By the time it goes out, then this big new bootleg series with all of these songs will be out, but we haven't heard that oh. yet. But, oh, yeah. But yeah. I was listening to a lot of the Shot of Love and Infidel stuff in sort of preparation for that. And yeah. they're, they're very geographical songs. There's New Orleans, there's Jerusalem, there's endless place names in, in Caribbean Wind and in Groom Silhouette yep. and the Altar. There's lots of places. I'm not quite yeah. sure what to make of that. And he had spent some time in the Caribbean. I, I don't know all the biographical details, but you can tell that from his songs. And I, I think of I and I as an outgrowth of that too, because of mm. course, I and I is a phrase from Rastafari, right? Mm-hmm. And he had just gone through not just a 
Christian conversion, but also sort of a search through some Jewish roots. And really, mm. Rastafari and Judaism have a lot in common, uh, surprisingly. But the Rastafarians look at the Bible and say, well, the, some of this refers to us. You know, they consider themselves one of the tribes of Israel. So do you have um, any thoughts about the title, Infidels? No, I don't. I don't, I don't understand that uh, I don't, very well I don't, at all. I don't either. Um, it's just another angry aspect of the album. <laughs> I don't know if he's accusing his audience or accusing himself, or it does. It does seem a little self-critical because it's sort of a fall from the the more religious and and joyful albums, I suppose. But as well, far as infidels, not infidel, right? Yes, yes. No, it's not just about him. But he, you know, he looks kind of like an infidel on the cover. It's hard to say. And he yeah, changed yeah, the title from "Surviving in a Ruthless World." <laughs> Wait, are you serious? The, yeah, I am dead serious. That, 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 was called, that was the original title? Yeah, right until quite late in the planning stages, it was going to be called Surviving in a Ruthless World, and he changed it to Infidels. And I have I no theory as to why that is. I would love yeah. someone else to help me out now. It's less literal. I like Infidels better. But you yeah. you get the same sense, don't you? I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a sense that he's surrounded. But it's also, like I said, it also seems, I never got the sense that he left himself out of that title somehow. But yeah. it's it's very enigmatic. So I'd like to to talk talk about traveling. I mean, yeah. we you, you you touched on Somalia, but before we you know we're mm-hmm. eventually going to have to go there. Mm-hmm. But before you went to uh, Somalia to to write that book about the the pirates, um, mm-hmm. had you traveled in in that part of the world before? And specifically, had you traveled in the in the Middle East? Uh, yes, just... to both. Um, I mean, I had done a lot of traveling in the years leading up to that, but I had been to northern Iraq. I had been to the Gaza Strip, which comes up in my book, Sweetness and Blood. Um, I surfed in the Gaza Strip. Um, and I had been to East Africa a couple of times before I went to Somalia. Um, I'd been to Nairobi and, and Ethiopia um, briefly. Uh, I had done some preliminary research about pirates actually so i'd I'd even been on a warship uh, out of djibouti um and that was all before i went to somalia before you know uh, yeah so the reason i ask is is did going to that part of the world did that change your attitude at all to to certain you know bob dylan albums particularly say john wesley harding which is so biblically based yeah, I don't know that it changed it, um, ex- except for the epiphany that I had when I was there. Um, but no, not, not that, not the landscape, not the, you know, the people or the region uh, mm-hmm. so much. But, you know, when I was a hostage in, in Somalia, someone handed me a Bible, and then I started to read the Bible for the first time in ages, for the first time in decades. And that's, I had several songs going through my head while I was there and not, not the least of them was all along the watchtower because it starts with, there must be some kind of way out of here. (laughs) So I was a hostage and all of a sudden I was thinking about freedom for obvious reasons. So I was captured and they put me on a ship. Mm. And while I was on the ship, another hostage handed me a Bible. A Filipino guy gave me his Bible and said, this might help. And it was the first time I had had reading material in three or four months. So I devoured it. I read that Bible twice, I think altogether. Um, and in some cases, it was the first time I, w- I was reading those portions of the Bible. I don't think I ever read the prophets in detail um, mm-hmm. because the prophets, they just sort of go on, you know, about the same thing. <laughs> um, and so I had never read Isaiah uh, all the way through. And in the middle of Isaiah, I read those 
lines that are quite evidently source material for all along the watchtower and i practically dropped the bible i you know this song had been going through my head and all of a sudden here are lines that are clearly the the source imagery at least for all along the watchtower the ramparts and the the princes and and the wildcat also too really um, and that was a revelation. So that started me thinking more deeply about the song, which had been going through my head and just sort of, like I say in my essay, uh, washing through me. I, Unless I get a hook onto a Dylan song, I just sort of let it, let the song happen. Right? I don't always try to interpret songs. But once I realized that he was making direct reference to uh, some lines in Isaiah about the fall of Babylon, the, the whole song clicked. I, I think I had... Uh, I'd been listening to it for years and thinking, well, two horsemen at the end, you know, something's happening, but it's not mm. four horsemen. So it's not the apocalypse. Mm. A lot of people mm. say it's the apocalypse or assume it's something like that. But the imagery in Isaiah is two horsemen coming to announce to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon that Babylon has fallen. The emperor is, has come down and they're essentially going to be free. And that's a big deal in the Bible. That's a big deal in Jewish history. I think in Isaiah, it's actually a prophecy, which is also strange. But that's also a big deal in hippie culture. I mean, in the culture that Dylan was living in, of course, the image of Babylon was a direct metaphor for the, the music industry and, and for America as it was becoming. Um, the new <clears throat> paved America as opposed to the old weird America. Yeah. Um, with all its power structures um, that kept him, you know, focusing a little like Dylan down or a hippie down or a beat poet down. That was Babylon to those guys. And so, in effect, you have this very short song that's very eloquent about a vision of freedom in the future. And of course, to a hostage sitting there on a boat off the coast of Somalia, that was also very eloquent. And so, that was the topic of the essay that I wrote about that. It, it occurred to me as well, just thinking about you know your experiences and filtered through that song and, and looking at John Wesley Harding again, that there's a few songs on that album that are sort of unfinished narratives. Uh, as I went out yeah. one morning is another one. Yeah, um, exactly. And I guess the roots, I mean, you, you can hear it in an earlier, slightly earlier song, Clothesline Saga too, where, mm-hmm. you know, stuff just happens and there's conversation and there's no finite conclusion. But I'm about yeah. to destroy that theory because on there are plenty of songs on John Wesley Harding where there are, you know, definite endings and him saying the moral of this story is such and such. Right. Um, well, and then that's what I thought about all along the watchtower. I thought it was a fragment. I thought it was, mm-hmm. I always thought it, it could have been just such a great epic song and he stopped at verse three or, or whatever it is. No, it turns out it's a very self-contained song and it's extremely eloquent. Um, and Hendrix, you know, reinterpreted it brilliantly. But you're right about Clothesline Saga, by the way. I, I think of Clothesline Saga from the Basement Tapes as one of the roots of uh, John Wesley Harding. In mm. other words, it's this loping sort of country dumb song, right, with lots mm. of verses that are kind of deliberately slow. Mm. And you have that, first of all, that was a parody. That was meant to be a parody of Ode to Billy Joe, Joe yeah. Yeah. which was a big kind of folk rock crossover hit. In, mm. the, in the late 60s. And it's hard to tell whether Dylan is making fun of that song or <laughs> admiring that song. Yeah. You know, he, it's, it sounds like a stoned piss take, but also he sat down to try and work out what made the song work, I think. Because then he took that loping kind of country dumb 
atmosphere and wrote Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. I think of that as a direct connection from Clothesline Saga to Frankie Lee. It's very slow, it's very loping, but it gets somewhere. Um, mm. And actually, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is a much better song than Clothesline Saga. You know, yeah. It's a serious song as opposed to a, a bit of doggerel. I believe that the Clothesline Saga, I think, I mean, experts can correct me on this, but on the tape box, I think it even was called, uh, the, the working title was Answer to Ode. Answer to Ode, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, who discovered that? Clinton Halen, I think? Clinton, yeah, probably Clinton yeah. Halen, yeah, yeah. I, as far as Frankie Lee and Judas Priest goes as well, it to me, it it's one of my favorite uh, Dylan songs of, yeah. of, of all of them. Yeah. Um, but it's a bit like, possibly, uh, this is my theory anyway, which I've just come up with because only because you started off with I and I. Uh-huh. But it's a bit like I and I, uh, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest being two sides of, yeah. of Dylan. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I was listening to it uh, just recently and... I don't know why it never struck me before so strongly, but the uh, four and 20 windows and a woman's face in every one. Uh-huh. Dylan could could have had any woman in the world, uh-huh. uh, in his world anyway, yeah. any, any woman who came into Bob Dylan world. Yeah. But he had just committed himself, well, you know, a little while before to this marriage. And right. to, to me, that's one side of him saying, you know, you've got everything you need you don't need those yeah. four and 20 women that's right um I agree yeah and uh but where he died of thirst there's also you know that mm-hmm. is he gonna die of thirst i i find it endlessly yeah fascinating yeah i mean that that has that has christ overtones right but you, you're not quite sure what he's getting at um mm. and of course he also undercuts the more he says the moral of the story the moral of the song in this very loping way and yeah. then you seem to get a very clear moral and then he got, undercuts it with the last couple of lines where the, the boy says, nothing is revealed. Nothing is <laughs> so revealed. It's, it's, really, it's really wonderful. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in that song. And it's, I have not completely figured that out either. I mean, were you able, when you were, um, when you were prisoner for, for all those 977 days, uh-huh. were you able to, do you have the sort of memory where you could recreate a whole song in your, in your mind and, yeah. and, and work through it? Yes, um, with I mean, with a short song anyway, like all along the Watchtower for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I had sat down, would I have remembered to Frankly and Jews Priest? Probably not. I did go through the, the you know the order of albums and then the order of novels by Faulkner and Bellow and that kind of thing, just to keep my mind going. It's not all I did. What I the the other thing I did was I remembered passages of writing that I had done that I knew needed work. And so I could, I, I would revise those paragraphs in my head and then memorize them. I mean, this is how much time I had. And that was a, that was a memorization ritual every morning was to go through the writing that I had done the, the previous day, make sure I, I remembered it and then tinker with it if I needed to, and then remember that. Um, but there were also, I think I mentioned in my book, The Desert and the Sea about Somalia, that I also went through the titles of Dylan albums in order, Faulkner novels in order, that kind of thing too. Um, just because I had lots of empty time. <laughs> but it, it fascinates me because like, I remember someone said years ago, you know, about the, your memory of a summer is much more important than whether the summer was was any good, whether it was a hot summer. It's your memory is what counts. Yeah. And it fascinates me because music is such, it's such an accessible thing now in the world we mm-hmm. live in. And yet... I mean, we've all been in situations completely unlike yours, but situations where we have to remember songs because we don't have them with us. And it's right. a different relationship to the material, isn't it? Yeah. 
when you you mean when you sit down and try to remember it? Yeah, because it's, it's your memory of, of a song, and it's all you have is your mental recreation. You don't have the song, yeah. you don't have the words, you don't have any anything to anything tangible. So it's right. somehow it's somehow greater, I think, in your in your head because it's yours. I mean, what I mean, how did it sound when you when you got home and you played this music? Was, <laughs> it, was it the same music? It it was, but you're right. The element is the emotion that it calls up in you, right? I mean, the, yeah. tu- the tune itself, the melody itself, is important for a certain reason. Those melodies latch onto you for very specific emotional reasons, and yeah. so, no, the melody I remembered very clearly. So the melody was not surprising when I put the song on again. But yeah, the details of the songs that would come back on the stereo in a way that maybe I had forgotten in mm. um, in Somalia. The other song, by the way, was. Um, that was important was I wish I knew how it would feel to be free by Nina Simone. Um, The BBC had played that at just a snippet of it a couple of times uh, while I had a radio. I thought, Oh my God, what a great song, you know? And I came back and listened to the whole thing and it was, it was different, right? I mean, I, the melody grabbed me and I kept it with me in some sense. Mm. Um, And then the full production is a slightly different thing. This may be too obvious, but what about I Shall Be Released? Oh. Wouldn't that be too painful to be considered to, you know, to think about? I mean, I'm sure that crossed my mind too, but I'm not sure why it wasn't quite as important. The other song, the other Dylan song was uh, Joker Man. Freedom just around the corner for you. (laughs) But with the truth so far off, (laughs) right? I mean, some (laughs) self-criticism and... So the, I had infidels on the mind too. Come to think of it, I don't know why. Yeah, I shall be released. Sure, <laughs> but it was not. Doesn't stand out. No, it's, it's interesting because maybe it's a little too on the nose. I probably so. Probably, I wasn't feeling that quite that lyrical. Maybe. <laughs> and, and one thing you said in the um, in Adam Buxton's podcast with you, which is uh-huh. really really worth listening to if anyone's not heard it, is you mm-hmm. were talking about hope and despair and yeah. how and I've, I've never honestly i've listened to this twice but it's been echoing around my head for years now i will mm-hmm. ca- carry these words forever that neither hope nor despair is really any use because they are both a con to kind of yeah. take you out of the present and and that's and of that's course exactly I, you right. think you know when you're lost in the rain yada 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 negativity don't get you through um yeah. but it absolutely fascinates me because we live in a culture where people are always kind of talking about hope and optimism and positivity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a person who's ever been afraid of the concept of negativity, I don't think, but I, it, mm-hmm. it fascinates me that they're both, they're both kind of a con. Exactly. That was really important to learn. I mean, I think I, I probably knew it on some level, but, but it was important to experience because we're always living either in the future or in the past. And of course, yeah. when I was in Somalia, in some ways I had nothing to do but think about the past. But when I thought about the future, there was nothing but uncertainty and maybe death. You know, I, I gave myself at some point a 50% chance of getting out alive because I knew there was at least some chance that there would be, for example, a, a military raid. And, you know, hostages don't always, always survive those. I was not against a military raid, by the way, but, but I knew that I wouldn't necessarily survive. So you look forward and you see very little, you know, and you realize that living for the future and living for hope is useless and in fact it's just as false as despair about the future and i was going through that wheel for between hope and despair a little too much in somalia and i had to learn to learn to take myself off of it 
there's a lot of that in John Wesley Harding, the uh, the album as well, mm-hmm. just injustice and yeah. uncertainty. And speaking again about the album, uh, I mean, well, listening to Drifter's Escape, mm-hmm. I was thinking of you, knowing you uh-huh. were going to be on the show. Yeah. And the, the injustice of being convicted uh, by a, a crime that you didn't even understand. No crime. Right, for and, no crime. And... I'm just wondering, did that particular song do anything? Was it for, in your mind at the time? For some, for some reason, no. I mean, of course, probably every song from the album drifted through my mind, you know, at some point while I was in Somalia. But um, I wasn't dwelling on that one as a as a song about about injustice. Yeah, I, obviously, it, it fits. But I, no, it's interesting I, how the mind just you know grabs what the mind grabs. Exactly all along the watchtower turned out to be more important for some reason. And I, so I've written one essay about that, but I might write further ones because I don't even deal with the, with the question of who the, the Joker and the thief are. And that's an, that's a completely open question. And then the, the definition of Babylon is also interesting because I mean, to me, the, if you want to take the metaphor forward, the Babylonians were the Somalis and that's totally the opposite of what Dylan would have been thinking, you know, in the, in a first world country that seemed unjust to him. So. Well, there's the theory um, as well. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's the theory that at the last minute, Dylan switched the order of All Along the Watchtower. Yes, so I've that heard it that be- too, yeah. yeah, so if it begins All Along the Watchtower and then mm-hmm. it goes two riders, then it goes Joker to the Thief. So the Joker mm-hmm. and the Thief are the two riders in that version. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good interpretation. I don't think it's the only one or the absolute one. He took his imagery from different places too. So it's probably, the Watchtower is probably not just the, the Watchtower in Isaiah, but possibly also uh, the tower from, uh, from the tarot deck mm-hmm. and things like that. So, so yeah, it's very possible he's fleshing out the characters of those two writers. But like I said, that's a topic, that's a whole topic for an essay. And because you, I mean, you're, I think roughly my age, a bit older, but you know, you wouldn't have experienced these albums as they came out. Did you discover no. John Wesley Harding in order? I mean, did, was there a kind of chronology to your Dylanness, Dylan education, uh, whatever? Not really. In I, so the first album I discovered was in high school. It was Blood on the Tracks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was, you know, I didn't have any hope. I was sunk as a Dylan fan right there. Um, <laughs> and after that, it was it was Highway sixty one. So, and maybe I knew two more albums before I went to college. And I think I lived next door to a guy who had almost all of Dylan's albums up to that point. And that's wow. when I started listening to John Wesley Harding and the other, the other albums. And I was just blown away. We, we haven't talked actually at, at all about your background. You're from um, suburban California? Exactly. Yeah. I grew up in LA. Uh, the, and- first the San Fernando Valley and then the beach cities in LA. And you got into surfing when at a fairly early, yeah. Age. Also in high school. So once we moved to the beach, then I started. I, I picked up surfing. Was there any connection between? Did you get into surf music? Not really. So surfers don't do that, right? Surfers <laughs> aren't into the Beach Boys. Surfers, right. especially around here, know that the Beach Boys couldn't surf because they grew up in Hawthorne, which is a couple miles inland. Yeah. You know, in the meantime, I appreciate the Beach Boys harmonies and everything like that. And in the meantime, I actually love surf music. But in in the eighties, that the, all that was pretty hokey. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we listened to punk, which was obviously influenced by surf music and stuff like that. But I didn't see all those relationships. You just see music in its social categories when you're that young, right? So surfers weren't self-consciously into surf music. 
Yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't yeah. have thought so. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't see them doing it. It reminds me, which which is the Hendrix song that during the fade out he says, "I will never hear yeah. surf music <laughs> again. again." Exactly. I had that on heavy rotation on my cassette player in high school too. That was probably on the <laughs> other side from Blood on the Tracks. I thought that was hilarious. I, I have no idea what Jimi Hendrix's relationship to surf music was at all. I think um, I know one thing. I think that, uh, I don't know where I heard this, but I think that he learned to pick fast by imitating Dick Dale. Right. So huh. yeah, he, yeah. it did improve his guitar playing. You know, it made him more dexterous. He moved past it. He moved beyond surf music. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> <He> certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, we, I don't think we've touched on Blonde on Blonde. Any, mm-hmm. uh, any thoughts on that? Well, I love Blonde on Blonde. I mean, it's one of my favorite albums too. But, well, uh, you had Charlie McCoy on a little while ago. And mm. yeah. uh, I, was, I was hoping to write a much longer thing about John Wesley Harding. And so when I was in New York last year, I found Charlie McCoy. And... I had to return to California in the middle of the summer last year, and I decided not to get on a plane because of COVID, so I got in a car. Mm. I drove across the country, and I stopped in Nashville and talked to Charlie. And he showed me the studio where Blonde on Blonde was recorded. He showed me the room where they played ping pong while he finished writing Sad-Eyed Lady, The Lowlands, and stuff like that. But what I really wanted to talk about was the John Wesley Harding sessions. They were in the same studio. Yes, um, and did you get anything out of him? Because we I, couldn't get anything. I got out of what him. you what you got. He he told the same stories. It was great. Actually. <laughs> of course he did. No, yeah. and they were good stories. I mean, I, my thought at first was, oh, I'm not getting that much new. But actually, those are good stories. And the, I think one thing that was enlightening about Dylan's personality that he told me that I'm not sure it made it onto the podcast, but you know, he came up to Charlie as the leader of the band. Hmm. Charlie said what do you want to do with these songs? You know, especially John Wesley Harding. I think this was the John Wesley Harding song, the session might've been blonde on blonde, but either way, Dylan said, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was Charlie's story. <laughs> and so he and the band had to develop the backup for these, for the melodies and the chords and the words that Dylan brought with him. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was something I didn't realize about his creative method. And that's one reason John Wesley Harding is so spare, by the way, he, he thought, he was going to go back and lay down some organ tracks or something with mm-hmm. members of the band. I mean, Robbie Robertson and that kind of thing after mm-hmm. he'd been in Nashville mm-hmm. with what were essentially demos, you know, those bare bones songs on John Wesley Harding were, were supposed to be just the start of more orchestrated album, but I think he just decided it was fine. So it's not like he went into the studio thinking he was going to do an album that was radically anti-psychedelic, which it turned out to be. Mm. Uh, but I, I think once he, he laid down the tracks with those guys in Nashville, with Charlie McCoy and the band, he decided they were good. And he was right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Robbie Robertson was, was asked, wasn't he? I think and he said, no, leave it, leave, leave it like no. it is. Yeah. 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 And maybe Garth Hudson too. But, and yet yeah. the songs are spare. I mean, even with more instrumentation, they still would have had this very unknowable, unfinished quality to them, I think. That's true. Yeah, they're very enigmatic and they're very uh, they're simple uh, or deceptively simple. I mean, you could argue that's why I think you know more than maybe any other of his albums. It's the one you come to when you're a bit older, and it's the one that oh, you never maybe, quite yeah. tire of because it's it's right. got unfinished business every time you hear it. It's exactly. never you never walk away from it saying, "Yep, I'm done. I know all there is to know about John Wesley." <laughs> exactly. <Harding."> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's weird though, you know. I think that uh, it was possibly the second proper Dylan album that I listened to. I know that my way in was Nashville Skyline, ah, which okay. had 
it had just come out yeah. and I, I thought I'd heard about this Bob Dylan guy and he looked pretty friendly on that. Uh -huh. Whereas I'd yeah. seen, I'd seen the cover of Blonde on Blonde and thought, Oh fuck, I guys well, this is way too much. Um, and and so I went back and I, I got John Wesley Harding. Mm -hmm. Uh and I actually really liked it. And I I didn't understand a word of it, you know, it, yeah. it, it was nothing to do with my experience. Mm -hmm. I liked the music, yeah. but for some reason I was very sort of in a way patient with it. Like it it didn't nothing unlocked at all. I mm -hmm. mean Nothing is still really unlocked, quite frankly. Right. But I and I still love it. It's it's uh it's it's quite magical. I mean, I think it would be one of my you know desert island discs, like the, just sure. the album. You know, just you could just live with that album, and you'd never really quite unlock. You'd never unlock it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I don't think he quite knew what he was doing either. I mean, he he had a few ideas, and I don't think he completely worked them out. I mean, I, I could be wrong, just like I was wrong about All Along the Watchtower, but I don't think he entirely knew what he was doing. No, I mean, when he writes a, a, a line like, uh, I, put, I, I put my fingers against the glass and hung my head and cried, mm -hmm. you know, that's something that I've always found, even when I was a, a kid, when I first heard it, found really moving, mm -hmm. but I didn't understand it. Right. And... You know, where did the glass come from? Right. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, song, he's out exactly. in the middle of nowhere. You exactly. Know? But uh, yeah, that's what he what he does. He's got that line to. I mean, when you when you were um, just flipping back to to Somalia, did you mm -hmm. did you write any uh, in your head? Did you ever sort of write any poetry or even song lyrics, or did you mess around in that way? Not poetry, no. But I I was first. I started taking notes. <laughs> about what was happening, you know, in the first few months, I thought, well, when I get out of here, of course, I'm going to write a book. Yeah. I wrote notes and then had the notes confiscated. That happened twice. And the third time I got my hands on a notebook and pen, um, I realized the pirates were going to look through my notes and take them if I was writing about them. And I was no longer yeah. so confident that I was going to get out first alive and second with my notebooks. So I started to write a novel. So not verse, but I did write something creative. Um, also just to keep my mind going. And I'm now still working on that novel. So uh, <laughs> I, I left Somalia with six notebooks because I had not been writing about the pirates. Um, and whenever they flip through my novel, they're like, is this still the made up story about the fish? I'm like, yeah. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> one, one other thing you mentioned in, in your book is uh, you quote a book that I haven't read called uh, The Gift of Fire uh -huh. by Richard oh, yeah. Mitchell. Yeah. about the concept of so stoicism, or at least it touches on mm -hmm. stoicism. And do you have anything to say about that? And also, does Dylan real, you know, fit in only, as a stoic? Only, oh, as a stoic? Maybe not. But I mean, I think of stoicism as a, as a spiritual discipline. You know, it's, it's really not an unemotional discipline, although it's associated with the Romans, and the Romans, you know, had this ethic of sucking up and just getting through it. That's not mm -hmm. what stoicism is, is about. Stoicism is about detachment. Um, and learning to detach yourself from heavy emotions. You feel the emotions, you know they're there, you can express them, but you don't live in them. And um, that was as, as important for Marcus Aurelius as it is for any Buddhist. And I think at, at heart, um, those two disciplines have a lot in common. I don't know if Dylan really has much to say about Stoicism, but I, I can say that I was really into Richard Mitchell, who's a brilliant essayist and underknown in America, around the same time I was getting into Dylan. And they were, 
they were contradictory forces. I mean, Mitchell's very conservative, but he's this old school conservative, you know, sort of a bow tie wearing guy, but brilliant and very funny. And Dylan obviously was coming from a totally different corner of the culture, but they were both really important to me at the time. And Mitchell was getting at something that was that turned out to be very important to me. I don't think he uh, he did quote Stoics here and there, but um, not exclusively. But he was getting at something that I think eventually Dylan was also getting at. Um, and I, I think those things were also wrapped up in what I just said about Stoicism and Buddhism. Well, I'm interested. I'm, I've always been interested in, in Buddhism. I don't know anything about Stoicism, but, uh-huh. uh, except what you just told me. And also, actually, what I read in, um, what's that uh, Wolf book, the uh, A Singular Man? Oh, I no, I don't know. Not the Bonfire of the Vanities, but the other Thomas Wolf. Well, no, the Bonfire of the Vanities guy. The Bonfire of the Vanities oh, guy. a man in full. A man in yes. full. Yes, yeah, okay. I had at least part of that. I read yeah, part yeah, of that. it's because he puts Stoicism into, into practice. For sure, So exactly. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's hard. Mm-hmm. Most of us haven't been up against the wall like that. Right. Do you think you were a bit of a Stoic before you, you know, had to... To really come face to face with it. Yes, I mean, I'm I'm sure some people would say that about me too. I mean, I don't I don't indulge my emotions in that sense, but I think it's really important to realize that that stoicism is not just about that. You know, it's not just this masculine ethic of of muscling through or something. It it really is about putting your emotions aside and learning to learning the difference between yourself and you know your emotional reactions as such. And that is, that's an important thing to learn about Stoicism, which is not always evident on the surface. It reminds me of that quote that you have very near the end of your book, which is, uh, seek not for events to happen as you wish, but wish for right. events to happen as they do, and your life will go smoothly and serene. Exactly. Exactly. Who is that? Who are you quoting? Uh, that is... Is, is that I've got, well, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but Epictetus? Yeah, Epictetus. Epi- Epictetus. That's, that's the Stoic I quote most often yeah. in the book. No, exactly. And that's just it. You can, you can be emotionally wrapped up and invested in all sorts of things, and you can expect the future to go in a certain way, but that's not how the world is. Mm. Uh, that's not how things work. And so if you can detach yourself from, from those events and those eventualities, then uh, you'll be a much happier person. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a great freedom, isn't there, in being able to not invest in, in the uncertain, I suppose, once you allow right. yourself to do it. And of course, you have to invest to to achieve something, you know. But you have to be able to go back and forth too. Yeah, it's important for just for basic sanity. I think. <laughs> I'm not trying to find a way to relate this to expectations of Dylan concerts and whether this is trivializing the entire thing or not. <laughs> yeah, how will his voice sound? Exactly. Do not expect anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we've all learned that, haven't we? I mean, come on, yeah, nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have time to talk about his songs in concert? Yeah. Yes, please. Um, I I have a theory that, I mean, maybe it's not even a theory, just an observation, but his songs, he's always fully invested in the songs that are the most recent, you know, but he also takes his songs on journeys. So everyone knows that his songs change, but I think you can actually date a Dylan song by how different it is when you hear it on stage from the record version. So when I see him recently and he plays his recent stuff, they sound pretty close to the studio version. And then a 10-year-old song will have gone on this 
10-year journey. And um, something like Blowing in the Wind sounds like a jazz standard. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's in some sense, it's retired. He's not even, I don't think emotionally he's interested in those old songs anymore. But they've gone on this long journey so that they're practically unrecognizable. Well, it, was, it was very interesting in, in the, I don't know if you saw it, but that, that Shadow Kingdom stream that was on in July. Yeah. Um, you know, they were all his quote unquote early songs in that they were the, the first half of his career. And right. yet none of the really ones that we're all tired of were, the, were there really. I mean, there was no Blowing in the Wind. There's no Mr. Tambourine Man. No Times Are yeah, Changing. That's you know. true. And that, I mean, that was actually, of course, not a live thing that was basically a music video right and so he could sleep in and restore his voice between each song or i'm not sure how he did it but Mm. his voice sounded great and he made sure that he was enthusiastic about every song so that was a difference but uh yeah those songs had gone on journeys too though you could you could see the the progression and when i first saw dylan which was with petty in the 1980s um I didn't know that. I didn't know he did that. So I would hear this song and I'm like, I, th- I think this is Ballad of a Thin Man, but it's really weird. I, I, Petty at least played the songs that were on his album. But I like that now. I mean, I like listening for the progression in a, in a given Dylan song because he has, to, he has to do that to keep it fresh for himself on stage. Yeah. Yeah, can you imagine if, if on uh, Shadow Kingdom, he, he came out and played the songs the way he used yeah, to play them. Exactly. Well, his voice can't do that, first of all, but yeah. it would that uh, people people would have fallen down in ecstasy, I think. Would they? I mean, for myself, uh-huh. I, I I would have been really disappointed. Really? I would have been horribly yeah. disappointed. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see what he's going to do next. Uh, so I agree, but I, I think a lot of people really... Uh, so at one concert I went to in 2017 in New York, I was up in the high seats and one woman in the back row right behind me was drunk. And when mm. Blown in the Wind came out, she hollered, she yelled at the top of her lungs, sing it fucking right. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, we all glared at her and she sort of showed herself out. But, you know, I think people still want that. I love that we've gone from play it fucking loud to sing it fucking right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 50 years. Well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's getting it back now. Right? Judas, do it like on the record. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I do think that it's completely missing the point of uh, Bob Dylan. I it just is. don't understand it, that at all. It really is. And like I said, she was drunk. So the rest of us were into it. But I think there's that element maybe – of every person, but also of the audience that really is nostalgic for the way they sound on the albums. Is that the last time you saw him, Mike, in, in concert, 2017? Uh, it, it might be, yeah. Let me yeah. think. I think I saw him twice in Berlin, and that would have been 2017. No, sorry. In 2019, I saw him in, in Northern California in Palo Alto. That oh, I've, was I've heard concert. that gig. That was a fantastic that, gig. Yeah. That was terrific. Yeah. Um, his band, you, you know, his band has always been good, but that was where I noticed that he was touring with just one of the best blues bands in the country i think yeah just yeah kick ass um he was on form too during that show it was a good show i've never seen him in a foreign country like do, do, do you think there was any difference in his attitude in say berlin did he do anything special for berlin i didn't think so um i saw him in berlin and then i saw him in hamburg with um mark knopfler and mm-hmm. in hamburg i should have waited for him to come to berlin because they only occasionally got together and played Blind Willie McTell, and they did not in Hamburg. So yeah. I'm sure it, everything depends on his mood. I went to see Dylan in Berlin with the rock critic Ed Ward, who's died in the meantime. Uh, and 
he had seen Dylan the year before, and I, I said, well, how, how was his voice tonight compared to the last show? And Ed said, oh, tonight it was like Caruso. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's entirely a matter of his mood and how things are going on the road. Well, that was the thing that fascinated me about Shadow Kingdom is that his voice had had a year off for yeah, the first exactly. time. Exactly. Maybe ever, but certainly since the late 80s. And, exactly. I, and I, just, I had a rumor that he's maybe quit smoking as well. I'm not sure if that's true. That um, would be nice. I mean, that yeah. has helped before, right? Or it sure. changed his voice before. Right. Yeah. When I did, uh, you know, when we corresponded, you, you mentioned th- this period. And uh, we haven't talked about Nashville Skyline. And oh, it's. Yeah. Interesting, you know, because it's the opposite of pretty much everything we've talked about. Yeah. It's full of wisdom and certainty and abundance and freedom and love. You know? Right. Well, yeah. And you hear him going there at the end of John Wesley Harding with the, with the mm. two songs that are pretty straight up country. Uh, that's probably the influence of Bob Johnson, the, the producer. But also he was doing these songs at a time when the country was really split apart. In the late 60s, the idea that hippies or folk music aficionados who were um, Dylan's followers and uh, Nashville, you know, the country music scene would have anything to do with each other was kind of a radical idea. And uh, Dylan just happened to be going to Nashville from blonde on blonde on. But at some point, I think, especially going on Johnny Cash's show, it became a project of trying to bring the country together culturally. You know, I don't think Dylan was doing it on purpose, but that was the effect. And when Johnny Cash invited Dylan onto his show, uh, right around the time of Nashville Skyline, that was a very deliberate effort to bring the country together because Cash knew that his audience wouldn't necessarily go for Dylan on TV. Those forces coming together in Nashville turned out to be a, a really important thing. And I, I think that's a, it's still a relevant kind of fusion of cultural extremes in the United States. I think it's still, a, it would be nice if that could happen again in some way. Yeah. I, funnily enough, I just uh, I was just mooching around on YouTube earlier today and I found Johnny Cash and Louis Armstrong. Oh, on, that's on a great video. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And seeing Johnny Cash looking at Louis Armstrong right. with this love, you yeah. know, he he really made an effort back then because he saw great music everywhere and he really made an effort to bring the country together on that level of music. Mm. And it's, it's really admirable. Yeah. As you say, it's kind of hard to imagine who could do that today or if it even could possibly be done. Well, it's so ironic it, that country music began like that. You know, I mean, this is the Ken Burns documentary talking, but, but yeah. country music began as this multiracial mixing. Oh, absolutely. Part, you know, melting absolutely. pot. Absolutely. And and a musician knows that, you know, but the public yeah. doesn't necessarily. Um, and, and that's partly because the music industry wants to chop it up into categories so it can sell the music in some rational way. In the old days, they had bins, right? Actual mm. bins full of records. And this was the country bin and this was the folk bin. And mm. you couldn't mix them because you had vinyl that had to go in one bin or the other. Whatever. A musician knows better. Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. I picked up a rose and it poked through my clothes. I followed the winding stream. I heard a deafening noise. I felt transient joys. I know they're not what they seem. In this earthly domain, of disappointment and pain. 
You'll never see me frown. I owe my heart to you. And that's saying it true. And I'll be with you when the deal goes down.